Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is film director and writer Manjari Makajani, whose film Skater Girl hit one of Netflix's top 10. We chat through her journey to the director's chair, from inspiration and AFI Universal and Fox Lab Intensives to putting yourself out there and being proactive. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Meg. Hiya, how are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Just being uh, busy, you know, it's, um, it's a release, release week, so it's been... It's been um, it's been a fun, exciting ramp up to uh, to tomorrow. I bet. Thank you so, so much for joining me and taking the time out. Of course. Thank you for having me. No, I'm so excited for you. I watched um, I watched Spin this morning. So I was so excited for people to see it because I think it's such an incredible movie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been fun, you know. I mean, it's been uh, busy back to back. I finished Skater Girl, and pretty much after finishing post production on Skater Girl, I got into this one. So mm. it was kind of no. I love that. It's all about the momentum, isn't it? It's just one after yeah. the other. No breaks for the next ten years. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we at the Good Bad Mad are all about trying to help young creatives find their way into roles in stage and screen because sometimes it can just be really hard <laughs> yeah. to, to, to start out. So what we like to do is kind of ask those experienced like yourself to kind of tell us a little bit about your journey into, into your roles and, and kind of the ups and downs and the weird things along the way. You're, you're part of a, a kind of big filmmaking family, really, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it, we have um, actors, and uh, uh, a director and a distributor so so among other things there's definitely <laughs> quite a few people in the in the film film industry in India yeah and uh, and even though you know growing up we never sort of really visited uh, the sets a lot um, mm. or you know sort of hung out on just sort of a film set I think it was kind of very natural the way um, I gravitated towards filmmaking and uh, and it was more about sort of it started with theater really where where I would accompany my father for uh, uh, just for some stage plays that he would sort of perform in because he he did he did both theater and he did uh, film yeah and uh, and then even just as as an audience watching stage plays was so fascinating because I realized wow here is sort of a blank canvas, just a stage that then transforms into a whole different world. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're on on a, uh, on a lovely journey. So that was my sort of introduction when I was still um, oh, fairly young. I don't know, probably must be like 10 or 12 years old or mm. uh, when I went to watch my first uh, stage play or maybe even younger, I, I don't remember. But that was, that was my first sort of brush. I was like, oh, this is fascinating, you know. Mm. Did did you ever get in, involved with with stage at all? Were, did. did you act in it at all? No, I didn't act, but I did get involved because I, I remember uh, I remember the first play that I watched was 
I think it was about clowns or something as a kid. I can't remember, but it was um, it was so fascinating because I kept looking by the wings and I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, they're coming in from somewhere and and they gear up and then they come on stage and it's you know they have their game face on and then they go away and they disappear. So I was very fascinated by what was happening backstage. Yeah, the technical <laughs> so, side. Um, uh, so so it was interesting because. I, um, while I was still in school, I would go and do backstage, uh, uh, help backstage uh, during uh, uh, my summer holidays. Mm. And that was very interesting. And, you know, backstage led to sort of uh, getting into light design and doing light design for some stage, uh, stage plays. And then, uh, and then in college, I was part of the dramatics team Mm. and uh, I would direct uh, uh, sort of, um, you know, just uh, uh, plays for uh, college festivals and and such. So, yeah, the foundation was definitely in theater uh, when I started. Did you study filmmaking, theater making at college or was it completely separate? So I didn't study filmmaking in uh, in in uni. Yet. I, I graduated in advertising. Mm-hmm. So I was still doing theater when I was in school. And then after school and college as well, and even after college, but uh, I graduated in advertising and I, I remember, you know, contemplating if I should just go to a film school and, and do film, because I knew straight off the bat after, you know, uh, my 10th grade board exams that I wanted to pursue filmmaking. Mm. Um, but then I, uh, I went to an arts college and then I did uh, advertising and I was like my dad my dad said if you want to if you want to get into film the best would be the best film school is to be on a set Mm -hmm. (laughs) so after graduation I went on set and I started assisting and uh, pretty much then that was my film school I learned everything on the job and uh, was um, was was pretty interesting I mean I interned actually even before I assisted I was interning at a um at Genesis, it was uh, uh, an ad ad production company, and and I remember the first day I went on set and and came back home crying. It's like, oh my god, this is just so exhausting. <laughs> this is you know a lot of work, and you got to know a little bit of everything, and and uh, you know you can't really sit on set. You have to be on your toes, and wow, mm. this is not what I thought it would be like, mm. and. Uh, and and my parents thought, you know, it's like, well, this is this is the taste of it, you know, and, and if that's what you want to do, that's that's what the industry is like. So so yeah, it was it was quite fascinating. And then of course, from you know the second day on, I just I just loved being it. I embraced it, and I was like, all right, you know, how can I how can I go find a swatch of something in a room filled with a lot of fabric? Yeah. <laughs> so those were some interesting interesting um, incidents that stayed with me. So, so when you were assisting, were you trying out in lots of different departments then? Uh, when no, when I was interning, I was doing. I had to do a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, it was from sort of I was helping the art director do certain stuff for shopping and going getting swatches, and you know, just getting anything and everything that the art department needed. Mm-hmm. And then on set, I was helping with production. And uh, so as an intern, you were doing a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and, and that was and that was quite, quite interesting to get that idea when then when I was assisting. So that was when I was interning uh, on a uh, on a few commercials. Yeah. Then when um, 
I was uh, an assistant uh, assistant director, it was I was very clear that it had to be in the direction department. Mm -hmm. And Wake Up Sid was um, the first feature I was an AD on, and uh, that was also really interesting. And and uh, you know got to learn a lot on the job. And the director, Ayan Mukherjee, was fairly young himself, and I was like, wow, this is this is quite interesting. He was an alumni from my school, so I. I was like, oh, this is possible, you know, he's uh, 23, 24, and, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, just a few years younger, and this sounds very doable and very possible to do it in a few years, yeah. and, uh, and then, of course, you realize it's not possible to do it in a few years. <laughs> it was, it took me 13 years to make my first feature after that mm. uh, first job. And, and starting out, were you mainly working in India, or did you move over to the States? So I, uh, I worked in India for, for a while. I moved to the States uh, in uh, 2014, so about um, seven, eight years ago. And, uh, and that was when after coming here and working and having directed, you know, some uh, branded work and, and short films and all of that, and kind of really, you know, calling myself a director, coming here, I had to then again start from scratch because all of that experience that I had there, didn't really count to sort of get me my next thing here yeah and um and I remember reconnecting with a lot of the people who who I worked with on international productions in India reconnecting with those ADs and saying hey you know I'm here let me know if there's some work so I think it's so important to you know just be able to humble yourself and know if you it's okay to start from scratch sometimes mm -hmm. And uh, and that and that really that really was quite a life lesson because I started from scratch. I started uh, as a PA again here after having uh, uh, you know done all that stuff in India, and uh, and then one thing led to another, and then I you know took a year, uh, did a, did the UCLA screenwriting program while I was working, uh, and did the professional screenwriting program, and then um, applied for the AFI DWW the Directing Workshop for Women. And that really changed the game because that's a really prestigious program yeah. and it selects, you know, eight working directors from around the country. It's very tough to get it, get in. And uh, that was, that was amazing. Uh, uh, you know, I interviewed, I uh, presented a idea for a short, uh, short film uh, and uh, yeah, and went and made a short film that was showcased at the DGA. That's how I got my agent then. And that's how I got the representation and uh, and then pretty much after the AFI program, I you know uh, wrote my uh, feature script and and hustled and put together uh, 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 you know the first uh, the first feature. I mean, it's amazing. It's it sounds like you've gone through um, like quite a lot of different avenues to try and find your ground and, and get as much experience as possible. Um, what what was it like trying to get those kind of first assistant jobs? Like, how how were you trying to make yourself stand out from the crowd when approaching directors and and line managers to kind of get that 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 role? You know, it was really interesting because for me, it was my my first internship that uh, you know was uh, sort of came in because I knew someone, I knew someone who knew someone. And uh, that's how I got my internship. And after that, it was really just getting, it was just really networking and con getting connected to different people. It's like, oh, I know somebody who's doing a film here. And then, oh, well, you know, this is a thing happening there. And it really was, was that way. And I think if you, 
even if you're an intern or a PA, don't think, oh, you know, nobody's watching my work or nobody's taking notice. I think it's so it's so crucial to just give give it your best, no matter in what capacity you're working on a film set, because you will get noticed. And one job led to another, led to another. And that is how, that is how you know, uh, it went, because I was working with Vishal Bhardwaj, and I remember they got my contact from... Uh, uh, from somebody who um, who who they knew at the production house where I was interning like years ago, yeah. so it was it was very interesting and um, so yeah it it's it's a small it's a really small industry and if if you're sort of diligent and at it it helps. But the other thing that helped helped me, which was sort of being proactive, was doing a short film mm-hmm. uh, while I was still assisting. I was like, all right, you know, I've assisted on a couple of films. I need to know. Uh, that is this the thing that that I'm cut out for because I don't want to be assisting all my life you know I'm very clear that I want to direct so I took a break and I and I actually uh, uh, did a short film put together really sort of you know just bare bone uh, funds to put, put together my first film and uh, and everybody I remember the other 80s were like oh why are you doing this why are you wasting your money you got such a good run why why don't you do the next project with us rather than going off and making a short film you should at least assist for x number of years then you do this and then you do that so everybody had like a game plan and I was like no I'm gonna follow my instinct and and uh and just go and make a short film and and then that's that's what really helped me understand that, oh, yeah, I can call myself a director now because mm-hmm. that short film was submitted to film festivals. It went and traveled and did really well. Uh, of course, it comes with its own bunch of rejections, but yeah. it's such a good learning experience to put your work out there and uh, and then leverage off uh, the next thing. Um, was, was that the turning point for you then from, from calling yourself an assistant to calling yourself a director was, was putting out your own work? Yeah, absolutely. To see it, you know, I remember the uh, first, uh, our first sort of premiere was at the Seattle International Film Festival mm. and just watching it on the big screen, uh, writer-director Manjuri Makijani, that was a moment where I remember I was like, oh, wow, you know, yeah. this is it. Um, but of course, even after doing the short film, I, I, I was still assisting. Yeah. So it was, it was kind, it was kind of an interesting um interesting uh you know uh sort of recalibrations like oh okay this is what I'm doing this is what I want to do and you know these these things are going to go in tandem for a bit mm. is it yeah it's it's this kind of ebbing and flowing is something that a lot of um creatives like yourself talk about when when we do these podcasts is an actress I spoke to called it um almost like a game of snakes and ladders you know at some yeah. point you're, you're at the top the next you kind of back back at like you say at the basics starting again and and that's kind of both the hardship and the kind of fun of this industry I think yeah yeah it really is I mean I remember you know I was I was in the AD team uh for uh the LA schedule of Dunkirk Mm. and uh, it was the same time around when I was doing my AFI DWW short film Mm. and Warner Brothers really supported me in the short film that I did and uh, I, I remember I was working with my sound designer Aaron Glasgow on on ICU and uh and 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 our LA schedule was also at at the Warner Brothers lot right. so one day I would walk into the same studio 
as uh, as a PA in the AD team. And uh, the next day I would walk on the same lot, sometimes on the same day as a director, you know, into my sound design, uh, into oh my, um, the sound stage. So it was just an amazing thing. It's like, wow, it just makes you, you know, learn and, uh, and also humble yourself to know that, uh, you know, to know that this is uh, above all else, you, you know, you put the craft, you put the craft in front and you're kind of in service of what is required at hand. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was really amazing. And also I couldn't be an AD here directly because I was not part of the union, Yeah, but I connected with Nilo, who's, uh, who's uh, uh, Chris Nolan's first AD. And I said, Hey, I'm here, you know, I'd love to remember you told me in India when we were working on the dark night, if I, if I'm here and um, uh, uh, you'd give me a job. So I'm here. And that's how Dunkirk happened. And, uh, and, and it was happening the same time as I was doing my uh, short film for AFI. So it was, it was a really, it was almost surreal. Mm-hmm. It was, I would finish, I would finish work uh, on, uh, on the stage and then get into another building as the director. It was like exit, exit one place yeah. as an assistant, enter another place as a director. So yeah, that was it. It's like, it sounds like you're learning so much just by doing things. It's like rather than kind of, I don't know, sitting through um, like that kind of prescribed career path that you were talking about is just like, just go for every opportunity that your gut tells you to. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've followed my instinct mm-hmm. with with every opportunity in that sense. And, uh, and I haven't sort of been like, oh, how is this going to look like? from an outside you know perspective or what are people going to think after she's directing she's going back into assisting but it was such a great muscle memory to sort of just exercise uh, Mm -hmm. on all these uh, projects that have been part of and uh, and that and that's and that really sort of subliminally works your way into your work and Mm -hmm. and the way you're approaching your work so so yeah it was it was quite amazing just just what you touched on there is this idea of kind of what what others in the industry are kind of perceiving you and your in your roles as. What, was it quite intimidating starting to put out your own work? Uh, you, you know, it, it is definitely, I mean, as a filmmaker, you are vulnerable because you, with every piece of work you put out there, you put a piece of yourself out there to be loved, to be hated, to be appreciated, to be critiqued. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is, it's part of the process, but, but I don't think, um, I mean, I personally, you know, I give it my best. And then once it sort of releases into the world, you have to have some sort of detachment. Sometimes it's hard, but, you know, you don't let the sort of the appreciation get to your head and you don't even let the criticism get to your heart. So <laughs> It's a fine balance to strike. Um, yeah, you wanna, you wanna, you wanna be as objective as possible. Yeah, but it also sounds like you had a really good kind of support network around you, and in, in forms of these programs that you kind of took part in. Am I right in saying you did like the Universal Pictures one as well? Yeah, the- absolutely. Those were really helpful. I mean, after the AFI program, I got selected for the Universal Directors Initiative and the Fox Filmmakers Lab. And uh, those were amazing because that's almost sort of the studios saying, oh, here are the emerging filmmakers and how can we sort of embrace them into the studio system? So those were amazing because you got to sort of interact with the head of the studios right down to every department, 
from marketing, advertising, you know, the execs of different divisions and, and how sort of that structure works. So while being on set, you don't get to know how the studio works. These labs, when you get selected for them and you're part of these prestigious labs, they help you understand the system and what goes on behind and who are the decision makers and how they sort of function and what their sort of roles are. Uh, so those that's definitely very insightful. So, so I guess kind of going into your first feature, Skater Girl, like what lessons were you taking out of those labs? Uh, well, with Skater Girl, it was an independent film. So uh, it was it was sort of the studio wasn't involved mm -hmm. uh, in the making of it. Uh, it was later that that Netflix acquired it, uh, um, licensed it. But but I think the biggest thing that you sort of uh, get from all of this is is just people management and crisis management. I mean, the craft is one thing, and that is, of course, really important. You gotta, you you have to know, you know, the the tools in your in your toolkit to be able to tell the story you want to tell in 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 the way that you envision it. Mm -hmm. But I think that is one thing, sort of, to protect the tone, the vision as a director. But uh, really, another big requirement of the director is also to just to manage people and to manage, uh, you know, situations that that are um, that are challenging and you got to think on your toes and you got to as a captain of the ship you have to keep your calm because everybody's looking at you for answers and I remember on um, on spin I had one of those uh, those uh, clicking things you know when you enter a mall or something the, the clicker counter yeah and uh, uh, one day I was just like all right I'm just gonna click it every time someone asks me a question <laughs> and I think by the end of the day, I just, uh, I couldn't keep up with it, you know, because every time somebody would ask me a question, it was like, I don't know how many questions every five minutes, but uh, yeah, that, that click counter just sort of ran out and I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's pointless. But it was just a fun thing to see like, oh, how many questions am I answering a day? Because everybody at every point, uh, they're looking at you for, for decisions to be made. And, and, you know, you've got to be decisive. You've got to be um, confident when you're making those decisions and you've got to know what you want because there are a whole bunch of people that um, look to you for clarity mm. and and does that like, does that confidence come with kind of just experiencing different sets over the years or is it it's kind of still that kind of fake it until you make it element but you know I I'm so bad in that fake it till you make it like I if I feel something, it's funny. I don't have a poker face. You'll just see it on my face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm really bad with the fake it till you make it. I just really pour myself into the work and I really work hard and I really prep hard and I have a whole plan and system before going on set and how I work in post. So for me, it's the confidence comes from knowing the material. Mm -hmm. The confidence comes from knowing the story you want to tell. And, uh, and even when you're starting out, I mean, when I did my short film, I, of course, didn't have all the experience I had when I made my feature film. Mm -hmm. So what really sort of helped me make those decisions was story. It came from a space of knowing, okay, is this good for the story? Is this good for the film? Or is it not good for the film? And then if you have that sort of benchmark, it becomes really easy to make decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about like, oh, should I make this decision? Because I'm going to you know, should I make this decision because I'm going to look like a confident director or should I do this because, you know, it, it's going to make me, I mean, that's just the wrong way 
mm. to approach anything. It has to come from what is servicing uh, the overall vision and what is servicing the overall story that's going to be out there. And then, and then it becomes easy. And then, you know, you also become really open to ideas that are coming from your different collaborators or uh, or anybody else on set because you're like, oh, wait a second, that idea is great and that's going to make my story better. Mm-hmm. Can we, can we, how can we incorporate that? So, so yeah. It's interesting, just the way you describe it there, it, it, it does make it sound like you're kind of a spokesperson for the story as opposed to kind of an individual who's working on it. Like, do you know what I mean? It does sound yeah, like kind absolutely. of the voice of it. I think you distilled it really well. You are the spokesperson for the story. And and I mean, really a, a very basic way to put it is you're the manager and the point of contact for uh, between um, the story coming out to the audiences and the people who are helping make it. And it's how you manage your resources, the people, the craft, the tools, the, the gadgets, the everything that helps you tell that story in, in, in the way you want it to be, um, that you want to put it out, that you want to put out there. So, so across these years, you've been, you've been learning the business, you've been networking, but where, where are you learning your kind of language of cinema? Are you studying particular directors or or techniques or where, where do you kind of source your inspiration for that creative side? Uh, so the creative stuff, I feel it's, you know, you, of course, when you're on set, you learn a lot yeah. just by observing. And uh, while you're involved in sort of the physical production of it, or you're as an assistant, you're, you know, I would always be uh, the second, second assistant director. So it would be nice because I would get to work with actors in some sort of form and then also be on set when they're ready and uh, we're filming. Mm-hmm. But I would do my own little homework. So I remember when I was assisting Vishal Bhardwaj, um, his um, um, uh, his other AD and my, like we would we would have our own shot list. Mm-hmm. So we would have the uh, scenes for the day, and we'd be like, "All right, let's make our own version of how we would cover it, and then let's see how it's actually covered on set, and compare notes." So uh, I remember we would just make make sort of this little exercise on the side when we had time and. And and that was interesting because then I'd be like, oh, this is interesting how where he's, you know, where he's placed the camera and how he's uh, taking this shot. And this is how I would have done it. And then and then you see and you learn by just really watching somebody else at work. And Mm -hmm. what I do is when I watch films and if there's a film I like, I just go kind of crazy and just absorb all the interviews or any behind the scenes or anything else that's on that film or that director to to understand how they approach the craft because sometimes it's just about it's just about knowing a, a sort of another perspective or another approach that helps you it's not so it's not i mean it's not so much about doing it how somebody else does it yeah but it's just knowing what else is available you know on the buffet so you can decide what what dish you want to make yeah no it's figuring out all, all the ingredients um, yeah and then and then kind of putting them together the way that the way that you want to exactly yeah it's, it's pretty much like that it's like how you make your own recipe mm-hmm. and uh and that and, and and that is your unique sort of voice as a filmmaker so so where did skater girl start because um you you produced that with your sister didn't you yeah my sister and my husband it was like a whole family affair we uh, raised 
we raised private equity and really went and made it for uh, really, you know, a sort of an indie budget. And uh, it was amazing because it was a, a very ambitious project and we wanted to achieve that scale and that sort of, you know, uh, that impact that we wanted to create. And so a lot of it also became a personal endeavor because yeah. we ended up building Rajasthan's first skate park and, uh, you know, having it as a community skate park for the for the local village uh, village there. So the job for Skater Girl really started when I realized that there's a skate scene in India yeah. and it's sort of booming, not just in one place, it's in quite a few places. And I was fascinated that, wow, skateboarding in India, who would have thought? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, in all these pockets, you know, whether it was this uh, village in Madhya Pradesh or it was this uh, fishing community in Kovalam or Bangalore, Delhi, Bombay, you know, there are these amazing pockets where skateboarding was thriving and the impact it had on these communities was quite amazing so that was the first spark of like wow this is uh, this is happening and and can we can we replicate this and that's where the idea came to sort of build a skate park in a village that didn't have one and uh, and just see the kids and their lives transform there so it was a very non-traditional approach to sort of doing something but we kind of became part of the whole skate movement in India in a way and that's how Skater Girl came about we had skate consultants from around the world and India we auditioned sort of 3,000 children of uh, just find our like lead actors and mm -hmm. and uh, you know got involved with the skate community and it was it was it was just an amazing process of putting that together and and then a year of writing what is it uh, that is uh, you know going to make a great story yeah so so then my sister and I wrote Skater Girl and uh, yeah, and then we filmed it in uh, 2019. Now, I, I completely adore the, the, the mix of kind of creativity and, and kind of cultural social impact at the same time. Like it's, it's quite rare that you see those kind of lasting um, efforts of film production, but I know it's definitely kind of becoming a lot more of a talking point in the industry being like sustainability as well as um, these kind of cultural impacts was that was that always kind of part of the plan or did that kind of emerge as as the development of the story went on you know I think Vinati and I we always wanted to do something in sort of um, just do something with uh, with sort of the locals and we've always had it on our bucket list to do something for a village community this was a great opportunity to sort of club them together and uh, when we were doing theater, we would travel a lot to rural India and do performances, do street theater and uh, do street plays and, and you know, interact with the locals. Mm -hmm. But I think this, when we stumbled upon the skate scene in India, it became very clear to us rather than going and shooting at an existing skate park or telling a story of just some particular community, why don't we create an absolute new place with uh, impacting a new village and and base the story there. And that was that was very exciting for us. And we were like, here's an opportunity to not just make a movie about how skateboarding impacts a community and how someone comes of age. Here is an opportunity to literally impact a community on ground and in real life that lives long beyond the film mm -hmm. and not just help one person come of age, but you know, just be sort of the catalyst for a lot of children yeah. uh, getting impacted. 
So have you visited it again since the film kind of wrapped up? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a commitment now. We have our, our family is there on and off, and you know we are in touch with with all the all the children. We have skate training workshops that are run there. We have different kinds of arts and you know uh, hygiene workshops, and somebody comes in does a voice workshop, and we have so something or the other you know keeps happening. Of course, the pandemic has put a yeah, yeah. not on the activities but uh but yeah very very much involved i mean recently four kids who had never skated before this film uh represented uh, rajasthan in the state jerseys and took part in the national championship uh in chandigarh so so it's it's quite That's amazing to sort so of witness. Astonishing. yeah it's amazing to witness that you know um that that growth that's happening there and they I mean, I love the time lapse in the film of, of it being built, but was that actually built before before you you filmed, or was it kind of built during the film? No, no, it was built, filmed before because yeah. a lot of our actors and the locals from the Kampur village who are in the film had to also train in skateboarding because right. you know this was Rajasthan's first skate park. The kids there didn't already know how to skate, so we 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 built the park in two thousand eighteen. And then everybody was training with, uh, you know, in skateboarding and they all got their skate gear. And as, as kids, they pick it up so soon, so quickly. It's amazing. And uh, and then, yeah, and then when we filmed in 2019, we had our own skaters <laughs> from from the local village that could be part of the film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like I said, it was a it's a very sort of non uh, uh, sort of film. It's, it's a very non-traditional way of approaching filmmaking. But uh, but yeah, here was here was like these the here were these two interesting things to put together which is like the social impact side of it and what's happening off ground and then what's happening on the film so no I was constructing the skate park was super challenging because we constructed the skate park you know during the monsoon season and oh gosh yeah (laughs) oh yeah yeah it was a nightmare I mean I'm telling you like the challenges I have faced on Skatergirl right from you know, its inception all the way till the end. I mean, it really does prepare you for, it's like, all right, I'm ready for anything now, you know? I mean, the construction phase was challenging. We had the monsoon and we had sort of, there were days when something would go off in the concrete, we would pour it. And then we were like, oh, this is sort of the chemical is retarded. We have to scrape the whole thing out, take it out or something where the concrete was perfect, it would rain the next day and wash away the concrete. So it was just so, so hard at times where I was like, what have I gotten myself into, you know? Why couldn't I choose a more cushy sort of <laughs> subject, <laughs> you know, and just... Uh, and just yeah. And having your sister as a producer and your husband on board, you only have yourselves to blame for these situations. I know, right? And... Uh, and, and and Emmanuel Emmanuel has been sort of working uh, in India and LA on and off for like the last you know 16, 17 years. So he and, and he had shot a lot more in that region and terrain. And he's like, yeah, well, this is you know this is how how you got to be ready and prepared for this. And um, and it and it was tough. And on days on days, I mean, for him to say that, oh, wow, I don't know how you're pulling through today. I was like, wow, I must really be, you know, just uh, sort of uh, hustling through this. Because there were there were days when there were things that went out of our control. I mean, 
my DP fell uh, really sick and, uh, you know, he wasn't able to come for certain days, but we didn't have the freedom of shutting production down. We had to keep going. So there were days where I was just working with the operators and there was another day where the operator met with an accident and, and, and he fell and he injured his thumb. And I was like, oh, wow, how is he going to, you know, operate the Steadicam now? So there were days when I was really uh, like, I guess we just have to, you know, pivot and figure what else we can shoot today. And, and the whole plan would have to change. So those moments are when sort of the adrenaline is kicking in mm -hmm. and everybody's like, oh, what do we do now? We have this whole plan, that plan's gone out of the window and how can we pivot? And, you know, you just got to keep your calm. I made sure that everything is fine. They go to the medic and that's taken care of. And, you know, then you just get back on set and you're like, all right, what, what, how do we make this happen? What do you do next? And, and then you pivot and instead of the steady cam, uh, we used, uh, we used the tracks for, for that shot and, you know, had uh, one of the other operators uh, do that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was almost a, a week or so in the whole schedule where um, there was uh, no DP on set and I had to carry it on my shoulders and it was, it was, it was tough at times, um, but, but you got to do what you got to do as an indie, you know, we just didn't have the liberty of like, all right, let's shut production for a week and then wait for somebody to get better and then we can carry on. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. You got to keep going. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know what as stressful as those times are I do think there's a certain um element in, in creative people who kind of love the chaos and the problem solving of it all <laughs> yeah yeah it was it, it was it was interesting I mean it does prepare you for like you know crazier situations so mm -hmm. I mean there's a scene in Skater Girl where she escapes from her uh roof and she's sort of you know uh, climbing off her roof and getting out yeah. And that entire thing was just done with, you know, my my gaffer shot uh, was operating the camera for that beat. And the other one was being operated by uh, the first uh, AC. So and, and I was kind of like, you know, really sort of uh, hands on uh, the director of photography and the director for those days. So it was it, it really throws you. I think sometimes being thrown in the deep end is what really helps you chisel your craft as well mm -hmm. because you come up you you think of solutions that are out of the box and even though in the moment you're like oh my god what's happening how are you going to get through this I think when you see the final result you're like oh wow it was perfectly in line with how I wanted it yeah and you know the whole thing seems really seamless and uh, and and again it's coming back to the story it's like what will be good for the story and, and what is sort of servicing that vision that helps make a lot of decisions go go by easy. So you get through the the chaos <laughs> of this shoot, for lack of a better word. You you um, you found these amazing actresses and and skaters and all of that. You you get to the end. You get through post. Um, where does the kind of conversation with a distribu a distributor like Netflix start? Because I know a lot of independent filmmakers are going to be like I need to get in front of Netflix I need to get in front of Netflix how, how did that kind of emerge for you so it's really important that I mean I had so many people reach out to me a lot of indie filmmakers saying hey can you introduce us to Netflix can yeah. you introduce us to you know Disney and I and I it breaks my heart but I want to tell them that's not how it works you know I cannot be the one 
to uh, introduce you or your project, it has to come through an agent. There's a system, you know, uh, uh, unless, of course, there's some, and I often do that if a project is presented to me and I read it and I go like, oh, you know what? I don't think I'm the best one for this, but I know somebody else who is great for it. And then you drop in somebody's name in the hat. But when it comes to sort of uh, getting in front of a studio, the best way to do that is through representation. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's sort of the cycle of, oh, how do you get representation? And then I'd say, you know, put your work out there and get leverage to showcase your work. Like it was my short film that got me uh, representation. So it was uh, it was David Gersh who, I mean, we had an industry screening where we invited people we knew in the industry and we had our own sort of relationships to leverage off. And then the agent will bring in the people that they uh, have connections and, and relationships with. And, and, you know, I mean, the best way to do it is through a sales agent or do it through your agent. And, and that's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. I think nowadays, I, I don't know, maybe it's like this, this instant gratification thing we've got kind of going on in the world at the moment, but people oh, yeah. see like new films emerge on Netflix and think, oh no, that's it. The system's changed. Whereas I think what you've kind of just said there is that no, it's it's still quite a processed um, traditional way of working. Yeah, yeah, uh, at least in my experience. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, there are, I guess, other ways uh, as well. But I think the best, the best way, sort of the most uh, professional way, is is you you get a, you get your representation to put your work out there and. Uh, it's always it's always nicer if somebody else is doing that on your behalf, right? As opposed to taking like, here's my film in my hand, come and see it, come and see it. <laughs> you know, now that's the buzz that really works well at a film festival. You have your screening, you know, you're at the Cannes uh, film market, or you're at uh, 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 say for another festival. You're going and then telling people, hey, my film's you know screening tonight. Come and come and watch it. That's different. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you're sort of you know in 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 sort of the the other world where you're getting your film out to release uh, to a global audience, it's important it's important to uh, understand the channel and the whole distribution system and approach it the right way. Yeah, no, I remember I did an internship with a distribution company a couple of years ago, and I I was surprised at how kind of almost quite antiquated the system is. But but I think that's because of the nature of the industry being so, I don't know, reliant on people um, yeah. and networking that sometimes the systems are kind of very traditional. It is. I mean, just think of now. it, right? Like if you get, if if someone you know tells you, hey, there's someone else I know, you should read a script they have, you're going to just take it more seriously than somebody who's just, yeah. you know, writing to you um, sending you unsolicited material. Mm-hmm. So that's really not, that's that's not really welcome at all. I don't think um, those are taken as seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are times when, you know, uh, there, there's an exceptional the case where somebody would be like, oh, I, you know, got this sort of person just reach out to me at this uh, festival or I saw this something here and that happens, that happens also. So, so you, you never know. <laughs> So, so you get it released on Netflix and, and it hits the top 10 across many, many territories. How did that feel? Were you prepared for that in any way? I didn't expect to get 
the positive response it got from across the world. I mean, I had people sending me messages from Brazil and Portugal and, you know, Maldives, Australia. I mean, literally just really across the world from Pakistan, Oman. And uh, it was just amazing to get people from different walks of life, even, 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 you know, men. I mean, I had one person send me a message saying, hey, I'm a huge, big, burly, tattooed guy. And I cried like a baby. <laughs> and I was like, that's amazing of how, you know, how he said he could relate to the character. And so I think, you know, I, I felt really good that we were able to create a story that's relatable and not just with skaters in India who relate to the story, but with skaters across. Because mm -hmm. I had skaters write to me from different countries and said, wow, I really relate to Prerna's journey and how she feels and, you know. Mm -hmm. and what she's going through and and, uh, and and that was just amazing no I definitely wasn't prepared to get that <laughs> that had amazing response and it, it once that's released is that is that when you start talking to Disney about spin or is that conversations already kind of happening that's already happened I mean I had finished filming spin by then oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so when I finished um uh, I remember I finished post-production on, on Skater Girl and I was like, oh, all right, you know, I'll get a little bit of a break. Mm. I'll take a breather, refuel my creative juices. And I remember my agent was like, hey, you know, now that you're done, you know, do you want to start reading scripts? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll start reading scripts and I'm sure that will take a beat. But I think, I think in my case, it was just, um, sort of an exception where it everything happens so quickly it's not usually how it happens and and definitely not how I was ready for it to happen so quickly and back to back was literally I finished skater girl and then read a bunch of scripts over a weekend and you know on the Monday morning I said hey this is a script that really spoke to me I resonated with and uh, and I had no idea it was at Disney at the time mm. I just read the script and I was like oh yeah this speaks to me yeah, and uh, went uh, when then I found out it was a Disney. Went and you know pitched my vision and my uh, take on the film, and and they really liked it and got behind it. And within no no time, you know, we were in pre production, like literally in less than two weeks. Oh my goodness! So, yeah, so it, it, from reading from when I read the script to when sort of I signed on and came on board as a director was less than two weeks and and like I said this is definitely an exception it's not the norm it's not how it happens yeah. but uh, but it was but it was incredible because then I went off and made made spin during the pandemic and uh, you know that was another amazing learning experience to recalibrate mm -hmm. and and kind of what I had learned from Skater Girl from that sort of the challenges thrown there I was like all right this is this is, you know, we'll get through this. We've got through that and and uh, apply the same sort of um, outlook. Well, it, it, from what I've read um, about how you worked with Skater Girl, bringing a lot of materials and, and pieces across from India, it sounds like a brilliant kind of collaboration between like this fusion of, of Bollywood and Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, my own personal experience, yeah. right? Because I've worked in both these industries and, and I see 
um, the best of these two worlds. So in my work, I think it automatically, just very subconsciously, they mm-hmm. fuse together. So even on Skater Girl, we had, you know, um, A-list crew working on Skater Girl. And uh, even with Spin, I had some uh, people from India come and work on it because, I mean, here again, the story demanded it, you know, to keep it authentic, to keep it real. We had mm-hmm. costumes uh, shipped from our Indian costume consultant in India. We had uh, uh, somebody do an original um, music. I mean, Salim Suleiman mm-hmm. did an original track uh, for Spin. And Marius DeVries, you know, was the composer, just an incredible, incredible talent he is. And he sort of, you know, did the whole musical palette for the film and, and gave the, the film its eclectic music mix. Mm. And uh, so th- these fusing of the two worlds was 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 really fascinating. And, and, and it is what spoke to me when I first read the script. I was like, here is a great opportunity to present, you know, my my Indian culture in a way uh, to, to the mainstream audiences here. Mm. I absolutely loved the the kind of way that you use the sound in in the film. Was that, was that a, a lot of conversation between you and and composers, the the sound uh, designers? Yeah, yeah, everything. I mean, I had so uh, so Aaron Glasscock and Chris Ord were my sound designers, and and we had to work hand in hand with Marius, who's the mm. music composer, and figure out you know where does music start and where does sound pick up or where does sound create a palette mm. and a bed and then where music comes in. So yeah, there were a lot of conversations back and forth on how do we create this sort of music from, from sounds of the kitchen or sounds of what's going on on the streets and how do we infuse the mother's influence in it and how yeah. do we bring in sort of who she is as, as a person and her personality into the mix and how do we use these sounds to not just make something that sounds musical, but how does it uniquely sound like it's coming from her and who she is? So, so those those conversations and that process was was very fascinating, mm-hmm. and was very uh, was very exciting to sort of uncover and unpeel and then put it together mm-hmm. and uh, and sort of present it um, uh, as a cohesive musical piece. Yeah, I mean, it it really is a musical piece. Like, I mean, I know you've got like specific sequences in it where like you're really pinpointing that kind of sound as music, but it is throughout the entire film really that you're kind of making these very deliberate choices. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was not just with music, it was the same thing with with production design, you know, where we brought in certain uh, uh, fabrics and certain sort of um, patterns and everything from India, heavily influenced by, all right, if this is an Indian restaurant, what are the things that they're going to, you know, be looking at? What is yeah. the lattice work going to look like? What is the style and the colors of the fabric and how do we keep it contemporary? So mm-hmm. all of those, all of those little detailing, even sort of with, with the costume, um, Trisha Baker, who was the costume designer, you know, we had a big costume wall and I love having uh, sort of seeing the characters growth through a costume wall. So we had each scene, each costume for every character printed and we had sort of a timeline of costumes and we can see, oh, here's the color theory and the color palette that I had decided. And here is where Rhea starts and here is where she ends, mm. you know, and that sort of spectrum was very interesting. And then that sparks a dialogue of, Oh, how can you now tell the story through every department and and best utilize everybody's skill set to do what they do, whether it's costume, production design, camera. I had an incredible DP as well, Jeremy Benning, 
who really sort of, you know, um, uh, helped put all of these elements visually into a really dynamic way. So yeah, it's the, I mean, the whole, all of it is so, is so um, immersive for me that I just get lost in the process. And then once you're on set, you've got all of this, you have all of this information and all of this prep work you've done that sort of just goes into the background. And then it's just you and the actors and, you know, it's all about the performances mm. because everything else is um, is on screen. Mm. And I guess in, in post you're working one, I mean, a lot on the sound, but equally on the colors because you're kind of bringing out those colors from the costume and, and backgrounds and, and design is, is so crucial as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think color tells the story in so many ways. And, and you know, I've always used sort of, um, I always have certain colors mm. that I use for certain characters and, and have that thing going on in the background. And that helps the visual language. It helps, it might be very subtle. People may not pick it up. But for example, you know, you have Rhea's world, which is more on the warmer tones and Max's world, which is on the cooler tones. And mm. in the festival of color, there's a moment where, she snaps out of sort of her dream world. Everything is running in slow motion and she comes to reality in real time. And that's when she's hit with yellow powder while blue yeah. powder is going behind her. So it's really the blend of these two worlds coming together and she comes back to reality. So it's a very subtle thing that you may not sort of, you know, process in that way when you're watching it, but but somewhere, you know, the, it, it, it impacts perception. Oh, 100%. We've been trained since birth, really, haven't we, um, subconsciously to associate colours with certain things? Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for you, but I'm excited for for the the world to kind of see this, this new Disney film, because I think that, I mean, they've got such impact. It's Disney Channel's first Indian-American uh, lead story, so mm -hmm. it's, it's very exciting. It's releasing August 13th, and uh, it's releasing in India on August 15th, and it's just I'm just really excited to see how people respond respond to this. It's not a it's not a movie just for you know the Indian audiences here. It's not yeah. just <clears throat> it's not just a story for the Indian diaspora, but it's 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 a universal story and and it's such a, it's such a sort of fun packed uh, film with comedy, drama, and you know emotions and family dynamics and friendship mm -hmm. and DJing and music and the Indian food and and yeah. festivals. Having experienced what you have today and, and I guess interacting with maybe new people starting to come into the industry, even post-pandemic and stuff like that, do you have any kind of specific words of advice that you might give someone who wants to be a writer or a director? I'd say just, you know, being proactive and trying to create work that you can put out there mm -hmm. is the best way. Because like you said, in this instant, in this instant, I mean, there are two things, right? In this instant gratification world we live in, we want to just sometimes put stuff out there and then try and get the rewards straight away, mm -hmm. which is, can be disappointing. And then on the other side, it's that, you know, you want to just take forever to make sure your work is perfect and not put it out there because you're worried, oh, it's not ready yet. And both those both those approaches, you know, can be can be harmful. I think it's just put in your best and just put it out there, and uh, and then leverage off how you can you know do the next thing with that. Mm -hmm. And that that being proactive and as an artist being being it sort of as an artist just creating work is what really helps um, 
uh, what really helps that 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 sort of movement, that sort of hustle, that that constant uh, thing of being in practice of doing what you love doing is what helps and and keeps growing. I mean, you know, as 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 directors, that's another thing. As directors, we don't always get to practice the craft all the time. It's not like a director of photography who you know they're operating a camera or they're running a show and they can do it um, kind of back to back. So I think the more ways we find of just being proactive is the best. Manjari, thank you so, so much for, for joining me today and, and sharing with me your, your story. I'm really excited to see, to see where you go over the next few years. I think, I think you've got a, a brilliant career ahead of you as well, as well as currently. Thank you, Meg. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.